Hey there, welcome to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. And I'm your host, Jonathan Chan. This is episode two, and today I'm joined by Will Green. Will is a writer and marketing consultant focusing on healthcare in Asia. His consultancy company, TigerMind, helps science and technology leaders succeed in the Asia region. He's worked with all kinds of companies, including some of the biggest pharma and biotechs, as well as innovative startups, trade associations, and NGOs. In addition to his consulting, he is also a fellow writer, regularly sharing his insights across a number of different platforms. You may have come across his work on Forbes, TechCrunch, Techonomy, and many more. More recently, he has been working with Singapore Biodesign on research into diabetes, and I'm excited to catch up with him today to talk about what he's been up to. Welcome to the podcast, Will. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you so much for launching this podcast. I really think that this region needs a great podcast about the incredible healthcare technology and innovation that is coming out of the region today. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's really great to finally catch up with you. You and I have kept in touch pretty uh, regularly, and I think last time we bumped into each other in person, uh, I think it was last year at the Healthcare O2O conference in Hong Kong. But do you remember the first time we, we connected? I believe we connected a few years ago, perhaps through that same event. Um, I met you through the Hong Kong healthcare technology and innovation scene, and you were at the time a fellow writer, and so we connected over that, and we've kept in touch. I've followed your work. You've done some great writing over the years, and we've also just kept a friendly contact as well. So it's been get great getting to know you, and I'm excited about this new initiative with regard to this podcast. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, yeah, it's been great to just keep in touch, and I, I definitely follow um, your work and what you do, and you're always sharing insights and articles. Um, I had the chance to look up our history, and it was in 2017 on LinkedIn. I was writing as a journalist, and I was looking up, uh, like you said, like healthcare events and topics, and I came across your name, and uh, yeah, it's been great to just get to know you and uh, read about your uh, your work and what you do. So for, I guess for listeners who are not familiar with you yet, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing about science and technology? Sure. Well, I'll start with just what I'm doing today, and then I'll give you the story of how I got here. So in terms of what I do today, as you mentioned in the intro, I have a consulting practice. I call it Tiger Mind. And I work with science and technology organizations that want to grow in Asia, that want to expand their businesses or their efforts around the region. I've lived in the region for 10 years, so I have a decent understanding of what's going on, although I'm constantly learning new things. And it's a, a big, vast and very dynamic part of the world. So there's always new things to learn. And then in terms of what I do for my clients, I provide mostly research, marketing, and business development services. Uh, these days, my work has been more on the marketing side, so helping clients to produce materials and documents and strategies that help them to raise awareness, to find partners, to raise money, to do various different things. But I've also done assignments related to market research, so basically just understanding who's out there and what's happening in the space. Uh, and then also business development, which is when I roll up my sleeves and actually try to find partners, try to find advisors, try to make things happen as opposed to with research and marketing where it's more like I'm giving my clients the materials with which they can execute on the strategies themselves. 
So that's my work in a nutshell. I work primarily in healthcare, which is why I'm on your podcast, although not exclusively in healthcare. So in the past few years, I've taken on a few clients in the development space, in the education space, uh, as well as in even uh, computing and computer science education. So, uh, and part of why I do that, even though I do ultimately regard myself as a healthcare specialist, is that I believe it's really important not to get too siloed in the healthcare world. I think this is something that I see happen with my clients where they're so focused on what's happening in the healthcare space that they miss out on bigger picture trends that will eventually impact the space. So I try to always be a little bit involved outside of the space, but most of my clients, as you mentioned, are pharma, biotech, medtech companies. Um, I work with big multinationals as well as with startups, with research organizations, uh, public and private sector stakeholders. So I keep pretty busy. Um, so that's what I do today. But in regard to how I got here, it's kind of a long story. So before I get into the story, I mean, any further questions about what I'm doing today or should we get to the, the origin of how it all happened? Yeah, it sounds pretty cool that you're um, diversifying and learning about uh, other sectors as well and not limiting yourself in healthcare. Um, I think that's really important too. Um, yeah, so would love for you to tell us how you got here. Sure. Well, I'm not Asian. I am American. I was born and raised in New York, and I went to school in Massachusetts, and I basically spent most of the first 25 years of my life either in New York, Massachusetts, or D.C., Washington, D.C., you know, the capital of America. And like many New Yorkers, I initially did what a lot of my peers did, which is I spent a lot of time working in finance and policy and uh, more general business kind of stuff. I was not into science and technology very much in the early first part of my life. Um, but what happened was, you know, as somebody who grew up in New York, went to work in New York, by the age of 25, I got a little bored. I felt like I was doing the same thing as everyone else. And I wondered about that big wide world out there. And I got to a point where I just decided to pack it all up and go take a journey around the globe. I had this vision of eventually doing something related to emerging markets entrepreneurship, but I didn't quite know what. And so I wandered around a little bit. I tried a lot of different things. I spent a little time in Africa. I spent a little time in Europe. But when I got to Asia and specifically Southeast Asia in 2010, I just felt like this region, um, and I'm talking about Southeast Asia specifically, uh, had all of the various elements that I was looking for. I mean, it was emerging, it was gritty, it was coming together, um, but at the same time, it was still, uh, there were places where it was comfortable enough to, to live well, and it just had this great balance of opportunity but also where things weren't quite so formalized and settled and structured as they were in New York, where I grew up. So, um, so I was very excited about Southeast Asia, but at the time that I got here, I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Um, so I started by doing something similar to what I did in my early days in my first job. I wrote financial research. I, I created this platform called Tiger Mind with the idea that I would help financial institutions to find the next, call it tiger market investment uh, opportunities. And spent about a year, year and a half doing that. And it didn't really go anywhere. You know, I tried writing research, I tried selling research, um, didn't really get so much traction. But when I started to write a little more about 
the technology trends happening in Asia, this is where I found for the first time that I had an audience where I wasn't just writing stuff and throwing it out there in the world and hoping that people would listen and respond. I was actually getting people who were clicking through the articles that I were writing that I was writing were getting decent traffic. People were reaching out and starting to ask questions and uh, ask to meet for coffee and do stuff. So as I started getting into technology, I found that there was just more excitement. Um, so I did a little bit of consulting work in digital marketing and that kind of stuff. Um, it wasn't until 2014 where I got my first project in healthcare. And at that point, I was living in Vietnam and I was working for a boutique consulting firm that was doing market entry for global firms. And I ended up working with a group of German medical device manufacturers that wanted to enter the Vietnam market. And I had never done anything in healthcare before, but as I started to dig into the, the trends and the factors and the market dynamics in healthcare, I thought, hmm, this is really cool. I could, I could definitely get into this. So as in previous iterations of my work, I started writing a lot and researching a lot. And something happened as I started to write and research about healthcare, which is that I not only started to find an audience, but I also started to find a business. Um, one job led to another, which led to another, which led to another. And all of a sudden I was doing more than writing. I was actually consulting and I was making a living, which of course is pretty important. So, uh, so that's the story about how I ended up in healthcare. Uh, in terms of what happened after I made that pivot in 2014 into healthcare, I spent several years doing various consulting projects. I, my major initiative from 2014 to 2016 was working with a company that was then a startup called MClinica, which at the time had a pharmacy data and analytics business that they were trying to grow around the region. And I became their chief digital officer and I helped them with market entry and product development and sales and marketing and all that kind of stuff. Um, after several years of working with them, I decided that what I really wanted to do was pivot to the developed markets. So MClinica at the time and even today was still focused a little bit more on Southeast Asia. I wanted to get a little more into the, the high tech stuff that was happening in places like Singapore, Korea, Taiwan, Australia, and to a greater and greater extent, China. So at that time, about 2016, I pivoted more towards developed markets. And since then, it's been great. I, I've been working with some of the top biotech and medtech companies. Uh, I've done some more work with startups, trade associations, uh, research institutes, NGOs, all different kinds of players. So I've had really a, a lucky opportunity to see the industry from a lot of different perspectives. And uh, so that's, that's the story of how I got to where I am today. And uh, I guess now I'm quite excited for what's coming next because there's some cool stuff in my portfolio today. But I'll stop there. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you know, any, how would you like to take this conversation from here? I mean, I, I just have to say that's a really cool story. Um, uh, you know, as a 25-year-old, like just making that, that, that leap, you know, walking into the unknown, uh, especially like, you know, moving across the world. You know, it was fascinating to me how like, as you said, TigerMind didn't start in healthcare or even technology. It was like a, a finance-focused kind of company. So I, I don't know if I missed it, but could you tell me how, how did you come up with the uh, name TigerMind? And then what made you decide to, you know, use this name? And yeah, well, I wouldn't say that you missed it. Maybe I 
sort of implied it indirectly in my life story, which I just told you. But the idea behind TigerMind initially was to write financial research about the emerging markets of Asia to help identify investment opportunities. And, you know, I initially planned to target investors. Um, so the idea just came from the concept of the Asian tiger economies. So, you know, there were these four countries in Asia that achieved incredible growth and basically went from third world to first in the course of a generation. And I was wondering at that time, what other emerging markets in Asia are likely to make that transition? You know, is it going to be a place like the Philippines or Vietnam or Indonesia? And I started by looking at a lot of the economic development indicators and doing a lot of on the ground market research to basically identify tiger market investment opportunities. The word mine, M-I-N-E, uh, just is like mine, a place where you're digging and searching. So it was a portmanteau of the two words. Um, I was also at the time looking for a nice short domain name that mapped to a, a company name. And, and I also have to give credit to my mom who helped me come up with the name too. I was actually visiting my mom at the time in New York and telling her I wanted to start a company. And, you know, I basically came up with a list of words and various names and I bounced it off my mom and my mom said, how about, how about tiger? Do something with tiger. And when I came up with tiger mind, she was like, that's a good one. And so, you know, thanks mom, you helped me come up with a name for my company. So that's what the, that's, that's the origin of the name. Um, but at the same time, when I first came up with the name, I also wanted something that was sufficiently abstract that I could grow it into whatever I wanted it to be because it was at the time a startup and I didn't fully a hundred percent know what I was going to do with it or what the vision was. The, the vision was something very broad that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial in emerging markets related to research and professional services, but I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do with that. So some of the other names that I had considered were things like Asia Capital Research or, you know, something like that. And that's the kind of name where if I stuck with it, I would not have been able to pivot into this new science and technology with a healthcare focus uh, business that I have today. So um, pretty much it was a name that I kind of came up with 10 years ago. And uh, because it was nice and abstract, I was able to bring it with me as I pivoted into new industries and business models. That is pretty cool. I, I love asking, you know, people about their, their names and company names. I always, I'm always like curious whether there's like a backstory to it. And, and uh, yours is pretty cool. It kind of reminds me of the one time I, I spoke to Aslan Pharmaceuticals and, and how they, they came oh. up with their name as well. It's kind of a similar idea of tiger and, and lions and stuff. Um, just mm. re re representing Asia. Yeah. So you went, you went into a little bit about what kind of work you do and the services you provide to your clients. I'm just curious, like, what are the most common business needs that uh, your clients in Asia look for you to help with? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say I provide a range of services to my clients that leverage my expertise and my network. Um, my, my expertise is largely in investigative research and content production, and my network is largely in healthcare and, uh, and the scientific innovation community in Asia. So I put these two things together, and there's a lot of things I can do with it. Um, but the one thing that clients ask me for help with the most is with content development around basically thought leadership 
related to key healthcare issues in the region. This is something where apparently there's not too many other people in this region who can do it well. And a lot of the people who can are, you know, basically owned uh, fully by companies where they are employed. So they're not like me where they can work across multiple different companies at different times. And um, so that's that's kind of the core of the business is content production based on investigative research. Um, but it definitely expands beyond that very often. I definitely I'm not just a writer for hire. Uh, I do a lot of consulting and other services that leverage that skill. So the key services, as I mentioned earlier, relate to market research. So the ability to find information, uh, maybe not produce content out of it, just but just for internal intelligence for my clients in terms of their business planning and strategization. And then mm-hmm. also in terms of business development. So actually going there side by side with my customers to help find key partners and other stakeholders to make sales, to forge partnerships, to find companies that they can license with or work with in some kind of way to win grants, to win funding, whatever. So that's the full spectrum of things that I do. But if we look at what you know, roughly 50% of my business is about, it's about actually sitting down, calling experts in the healthcare ecosystem, and then writing about what they're saying. And this is what leverages my journalistic background and expertise. It's certainly it's a major passion of mine in terms of just constantly meeting new people and understanding, you know, what they're working on and understanding their view on the industry and how things are changing in this region. But certainly I don't want to get pigeonholed in as a writer because there's so much more that one can do with the kind of investigative journalistic skill set that I bring. So that's kind of my portfolio of services, but also a little bit about what my main services are. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's this is where like you and I have uh, common ground on just, um, you know, having a journalistic background, uh, the love of writing, but also um, just being able to do something else with it as well. As as you mentioned, like you can do a lot of consulting work, market research. And I just love how like in the process, I get to learn. Uh, I just remember when I was a journalist, the, the writing part was fun, but also just being able to talk to people, connect with people, learn from them through the interviews. It's it's so educational and insightful. And like, I'm sure you agree with me. Like every time you, you start a new project, you talk to new people, make new connections, you just learn so much. It's totally true. And it's one of the reasons why, even though my consulting business has grown incredibly well in the last couple of years, particularly since I moved to Singapore last year, um, I still try to always set aside a little bit of time to write about things that are totally unrelated to any of my current projects. I still try to always basically, in other words, find time to be a journalist because Mm -hmm. as a journalist, you really have this amazing opportunity to go and approach anyone and ask them about anything. You know, when you're working as a consultant, you always have an agenda. You're always looking for something specific and you're always doing it in a commercial context where often the client owns your work in some kind of way. Whereas as a journalist, you have a lot of freedom to think broadly and talk to lots of different types of people and write about things that genuinely interest you. So uh, unfortunately, I don't have quite as much time these days to do the same level of journalism that I did in uh, previous years when I was getting started. 
But, uh, you know, I still try to do at least five to ten stories per year. Uh, so, for example, I mean, I'm not doing anything today related to health AI, but I thought that health AI, of course, this is an area that lots of people are talking about. And I thought that not enough people were talking about the role of AI to help in the primary care context. So my last story under my own name that was just purely journalistic, that wasn't driven by any kind of consulting or commercial uh, obligations was precisely about that, was about the role of AI in expanding access and quality in primary care services around the world. So it's that kind of stuff that ultimately still motivates me. And one thing that I can say also is that the, the journalism and the writing is such a passion that I'm pretty sure if I ever retire, that's what I'm going to do when I retire. I'm going to write. I'm going to go back to writing full time. The problem, of course, with writing, as you know, is that journalism does not pay very well. Typically, <laughs> uh, it's very hard to earn a living doing it. In fact, most of my journalism I make nothing for. And sometimes my best pieces will require me to go and travel to meet people and spend sometimes dozens or even hundreds of hours researching and talking to people. And that's often uncompensated. Um, or the compensation is so low that it might as well just be uncompensated. So, you know, of course, it's hard to be a full-time journalist these days unless you're working for a top-tier publication in a full-time context. But uh, I think one way that journalists can help to leverage their skill set is doing what I do and uh, do writing and marketing consulting. This is a model that I've seen many people in the United States do, but there's not quite as many journalists out here who have done something similar. And so um, one thing that I am doing, I mean, increasingly as my consulting practice grows is I've been hiring people with a journalistic skill set because I find that it's a skill set that's very valuable in terms of finding information and organizing information and finding the signal in the noise. It's something that I can certainly work with a lot. So um, I have several projects right now where I've actually employed people with journalistic backgrounds and it's been very productive. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's sort of where the journalism fits into things. And uh, I gather that you have a very similar type of attitude because it seems like you two uh, are still doing journalism. I mean, I read some of your stuff from time to time and I think this podcast is a very journalistic type of initiative. But uh, you know, Jonathan, is this something that you're still planning to do? Or are you going to keep writing uh, going forward? Yeah, I definitely want to keep writing. And, you know, it's it funny because when I was, um, you know, doing full-time journalism as a journalist, I was, you know, researching stories, looking at different angles, and then speaking to people. And then I have, I would have these great interviews with people. I learned so much. But then when it comes to actually putting it down in writing and in words, you have kind of restrictions like word limit and, and things like that. And then, uh, you know, you end up having to like cut out a lot of stuff that would be interesting, but ultimately doesn't make it into the, the news article or, or, or story. And then I just thought, why don't I just start a podcast? You know, I can just throw the whole <laughs> interview online and then people can just hear the whole conversation. And that's one of the ideas I had when I started this podcast. I learned so much, but in the end, maybe like, 20, 30, 40% of it make it into the story. So why don't I just start a podcast? But uh, yeah, it's really great to hear how um, you're leveraging your uh, journalistic skills to to start a consultancy and then just using these these skill sets for other uh, projects and work as well. Um, and speaking of which, you've recently worked on a diabetes project with uh, Singapore mm -hmm. Bio Design, And uh, I just want to 
you know, spend some time asking you about that. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this project and what this research was about? Sure. So the nice thing about working with Singapore Biodesign, unlike with some of my other clients, is that uh, there's no NDA there. So I'm, I'm actually part of their team. I am officially their writer in residence. And if you go to their website, you can see me there. With some of my other clients, uh, because there are NDAs in place, I can only speak broadly about what we're doing. But with regard to Singapore Biodesign, um, they found me last year. In fact, it sort of it worked both ways. Uh, the backstory was that one of my previous clients was an organization called the Asia Pacific Medical Technology Association, or APAC-MED. And for the last few years, I had been helping them produce some research and writings related to their annual conference series. Which, which was and still is a really fantastic forum for people with an interest in the medical technology space. And so it just so happened that I was working there one year and I was at one of their sessions and I was sitting in the back and doing my usual thing of taking notes furiously. <laughs> and somebody who was sitting next to me said, wow, you know, you seem really engaged and, you know, what, what are you up to? Because you know how conferences are. A lot of times people go to conferences and they spend half their time on their phone and, <laughs> sort of staring out the window. So I think this guy noticed that, you know, it's unusual that somebody's there, like, focused, really intently taking notes. Um, but then, you know, we got to talking, and he was, his name was Anurag Myral, really nice guy. He works at Singapore, at Stanford Biodesign, which is part of the global biodesign network, which I can explain in a moment what that is. But he noticed me, and, you know, we got to talking, and uh, we were talking about various opportunities, and he made some connections that ultimately led to Singapore Biodesign hiring me and pulling me in-house to do this writer-in-residence function. So that's the backstory. In terms of what Singapore Biodesign is, just to give a little bit of clarity on that, um, they're basically a medtech innovation community and fellowship program where they do a lot of different activities related to helping to train the next generation of medical technology and healthcare technology innovators. One of their key initiatives is an annual fellowship program where they take a group of highly talented and experienced fellows and they send them around Asia to observe what's happening in on-the-ground clinical contexts and use that as an approach to coming up with ideas for new innovations in a certain field. So this is something that actually it's a methodology that is employed globally. It was pioneered at Stanford several decades ago. And then over the years, Stanford has rolled out this program and this methodology to other programs around the world. And some of the programs are, you know, officially affiliated with Stanford. Some of them are part of, you know, an independent program. In the case of Singapore Biodesign, they actually used to be called Singapore Stanford Biodesign because they were, uh, they were actually affiliated with Stanford. Over the last year, they have now become an independently operated organization. So they pivoted to the name Singapore Biodesign just to reflect their renewed and increased focus on Asia. So that's the organization. Now, in terms of what I do for them as writer in residence, there are a couple different things. But one of the main uh, initiatives that we worked on in the past uh, few months was that they had their fellows last year go around Asia to specifically research diabetes in the region. So they were doing a lot of both, you know, on the ground research in countries like China and Indonesia and Singapore, but then also, you know, desk research on and literature reviews on the key science and technology trends that were impacting diabetes care 
in Asia. So at the end of this program, these fellows came back with all of this knowledge and all of these notes and and they presented that at an event that was held by Singapore Biodesign last year called the Thought Leader Series. But the idea was that we didn't want all of this knowledge to just evaporate when the fellows left to go on to the next phase of their careers. We wanted to document all of that. We wanted to pull together these notes and this knowledge and produce some kind of study that could benefit the community broadly so that we could show what we learned about diabetes in Asia. And the result, after many months of research and writing, was we came up with a fairly uh, pithy, straightforward white paper that describes some of the key learnings from that experience. So the white paper is now available online. Um, I think it's pretty much essential reading for anybody with an interest in diabetes technology and innovation in the region. I would also say that anybody who's involved in diabetes care, this would be clinicians or nurses or even caregivers, could also benefit from this white paper. So hopefully uh, it will be widely read and deployed, and hopefully, more importantly, it will have impact in terms of improving quality of care and coming up with new innovations to address the diabetes, I would call it the epidemic in Asia, because really it's a, it's a massive problem in this region. It's a growing problem, and it's something that will potentially bankrupt healthcare systems if it's not dealt with more proactively. So that's what we did. And as part of subsequent things, I mean, I'm going to be working with Singapore Biodesign going forward. They have a current group of fellows right now who are traveling around Asia uh, doing something very similar in ophthalmology. So they're going to be coming back from their you know, travel and research next month. And we're going to be sitting down and talking about doing the same thing for ophthalmology in Asia. So not quite sure what the story yet is going to be on that, but stay tuned. We will, by Q1 2020, have another white paper out on the ophthalmology space. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, and uh, for the diabetes white paper, I'll, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes so that um, people who are interested would be able to access it and, and read about your work. But yeah, coming back to diabetes, I had a chance to look through it. And I love how you know the report gives a snapshot of three different cities. So I would love for you to maybe give us an overview of um, some of the findings in the report, uh, because I know like the chronic nature of diabetes ends up having a lot of implications on like how a country manages um, their population. And then you have other uh, downstream effects like social or economic um, impacts. So we'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So happy to share a few top level insights. But if there are any listeners who want to know more, who want to know more details, uh, feel free to reach out to me personally. I would be happy to connect you with the experts who actually came up with the key ideas and concepts that were showcased in this report. My role in this report was more in terms of pulling it all together and supporting the writing and production of this document, as well as the, the marketing of the document post-production. That being said, you know, having been involved in this project from day one, I can, I can speak a little bit about what some of the key findings. So first of all, as mentioned before, diabetes is a huge problem. It's imposing, you know, billions of dollars in expenses on healthcare systems across the region. It is a rising epidemic. Um, there are hundreds of millions of diabetics in the region. Uh, large percentages of them in many countries are undiagnosed. Um, so it's a big problem across the region. Uh, the issue, of course, is that to come up with approaches 
um, that will actually address the problem in meaningful ways. You know, there's no one size fits all type strategy. I know in the world of healthcare technology and digital health, where you and I have spent a lot of time, there are dreams of these scalable platforms. And there may be some that do meaningfully scale in some therapeutic areas in some types of ways. In diabetes, it's going to be very hard to do that without customizing any kind of approach, be it a technology or be it a public policy to the specific needs of a given country or even, you know, a given area within a country. So just to come up with some specific examples, the fellows spent uh, a lot of time in Indonesia. You know, they spent time visiting hospitals and clinics and talking to uh, patients and caregivers in Indonesia. And one thing that came up, uh, you know, Indonesia, of course, is a Muslim country. So they celebrate Ramadan every year. And with Ramadan, there are all sorts of very uh, strong restrictions on what you can eat and, you know, how you can conduct yourself during the holy month. So if you're going to build a digital health technology that addresses diabetes without taking into account the fact that there is an entire month of the year where people are not supposed to eat for the whole day and where uh, various practices might interfere with, for example, medication regimes or treatment plans, then you're totally missing a key local cultural nuance that is critical for addressing the diabetes epidemic. So that's just one example that was highlighted in the report. You know, another example might be in a place like China, where one of the key problems, as I think is widely known, is that you know, the, the quality and availability of primary care outside of the cities and even within the cities is very limited. So what you have is the situation where a lot of people don't get adequate primary care treatments. They don't get the kind of screenings and lifestyle interventions that are necessary to prevent a disease like diabetes. So what happens is they don't tend to know they have anything wrong with them until the diabetes leads to complications at which point maybe they have a diabetic foot ulcer or maybe they have blurry vision from diabetic retinopathy and then they go straight away to a big overcrowded tertiary public hospital in a major city like Beijing or Shanghai where they're really, I mean, they're sort of, they're dealing with incredible crowding where they're not getting access to, you know, high quality preventative care. So, you know, the whole experience is sort of flipped on its head in terms of how it should be. Uh, what there really needs to be more of in a place like China is more access to primary care services for screening and prevention. This, of course, is true everywhere. But in a place like China, where, you know, it's a really significant issue, digital health or public policy initiatives geared towards the diabetes epidemic have a key area of unmet need where they could focus on. Whereas in a place like Singapore, where I live today, they're still facing similar problems in terms of prevention, but they have widespread screening. They have great primary care. So it's not as much of a need to bolster primary care and screening in a place like Singapore as it is in China. So these are exactly the kinds of local nuances that need to be considered when you're addressing any kind of healthcare issue, um, but particularly in the case of diabetes. So those are some of the key insights from the reports. Anything more detailed than that, and I would definitely have to you know, link any interested listener up with the, the experts who went out and did the original research, but that's just some top-level findings that I think are broadly interesting to everyone. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how in Asia, despite how you know a lot of our countries are like so close together the healthcare systems are 
you know, completely different. Um, you have more advanced systems like Singapore and, and, and some other systems like Indonesia are a little bit behind and they struggle with different issues. And, you know, like towards the end of the report, uh, there was a section about how um, a digital innovation may serve as, you know, potential solutions to some of these problems that we face uh, in addressing diabetes care. So could you touch on that? Sure. Well, the research certainly confirms a lot of the initial suspicions that local nuances, not just in terms of the healthcare system structure, but also in terms of the culture, in terms of the epidemiology, in terms of the diet, in terms of, you know, how care is distributed between cities and rural areas, all these things need to be taken into account. So there's no one size fits all digital health solution that you know, with a small team in a, in a place like Singapore or Hong Kong is going to scale across the total region. So, you know, any startups that think that they can do that, any investors who are putting money behind that kind of idea, maybe might want to think twice. Again, it's not to say that a digital platform can't be customized and tailored to other specific countries. But, you know, there's a lot of groundwork that needs to happen to get that customization right. And so the report looked at the different countries, and it made some specific suggestions about what those customizations are. What the report didn't do was it didn't talk about some of the, you know, the ideas that came out of the program specifically. So Singapore Biodesign, it's not just a, you know, it's not just a knowledge generation organization. I mean, part of what they're trying to do is get people to actually, based on the knowledge, launch digital health companies. And so one of the, the, the fellows from last year, a friend of mine, a guy named Scott Wong, uh, happened to launch a company called Podino, which started off, as I understand today, as a digital therapeutic geared towards people with diabetic foot ulcers. So the idea is that it's a platform that you prescribe to somebody when they present with a diabetic foot ulcer, and it provides a series of services uh, digitally mediated that help that patient to better deal with his or her condition. So that's just an example of the type of innovations that come out of the program, as opposed to just you know suggestions for areas of opportunity. Um, my understanding also is that Scott is now in the process of iterating further on this initial concept, which he has already presented and developed. So uh, he'll be working on that more. I'll look forward to seeing how that project moves forward over time. But, you know, that's sort of what the, the program broadly is aiming to do, not just give suggestions about digital health opportunities, but actually inspire people to roll up their sleeves and create things. Hmm. Um, yeah, definitely want to uh, read more on that. Uh, and if anyone listeners um, want to check out the uh, white paper, I will definitely put the link in the uh in the show notes. So another area that you have written on is uh, uh, lab diagnostics in Asia. Could hmm. you um, maybe tell us what you've learned? Sure. Well, at a very top level, you know, I have written a bit about the lab diagnostic space. I've written about new technologies and new tests that have emerged from the region, as well as unmet needs in that space. Um, I do have a client right now, which is one of the regions, actually one of the world's top uh, lab diagnostics companies due to NDA. I can't mention their name specifically, but I am working with them on developing content and also a marketing strategy to help them build their business in Asia. In terms of some of the broad themes that are impacting the space, as in almost every other case, you know, in the emerging markets, you have problems with access and quality. 
So, uh, you know, there are lab diagnostics firms in basically every country around the region, but the quality varies, the level of services vary. And so certainly improving access to high quality lab services in emerging markets is an ongoing challenge. However, for labs in more developed markets, one of the big challenges is that most of these companies work by what we call transactional pricing models. So basically, they get paid based on the volume of tests they provide. And there is a growing chorus of people in the industry across Asia and across the world who are saying labs have so much more opportunity than that. You know, labs are collecting all this data. They have people who have experience in epidemiology and pathology. They shouldn't just be focused on taking samples and delivering results. They should play more of a consultative role in healthcare systems. They should work with clinicians to consult on treatment selection and diagnostic test selection. They should work with payers to, to help uncover epidemiological trends and conduct risk stratification type exercises. They really have huge opportunity to work with all different kinds of stakeholders in major ways. So part of what I'm doing in my writing and then also in terms of my consulting work is helping to uncover these areas of opportunity for labs to have greater impact on healthcare systems, to use their data, to use their expertise, to use their specialties in order to increase their value, in order to do more and to not be commoditized. So that's what a lot of my work in the lab space is about. I would say the other key thing that excites me in Asia's lab diagnostic space is that what we see more of, um, and of course we see this in every therapeutic and technological domain, but we see more of Asian-focused companies and researchers focused on Asian issues. So new tests that are rising to deal with problems, for example, like lung cancer and gastrointestinal cancer that are incredibly common in Asia to an even greater extent than they are in America, and developing new tests and also customizing existing tests to take into account Asian genotypes and phenotypes. So there's a lot of innovation in that area as well, and part of my work is about uncovering that. So this is some of the work that I'm doing in the lab diagnostic space. It spans the full spectrum from sort of commercial strategies of, of, of labs to also science and technology innovation that is emerging from the region. A very exciting dynamic space and one that, you know, compared to therapeutics, compared to digital health, compared to other segments of the healthcare industry, maybe doesn't get as much uh, attention as it deserves. So, you know, labs, a uh, big problem with labs is that they tend to kind of sit in the background of healthcare systems. They're in the basement, you know, metaphorically, sometimes literally. <laughs> and, you know, they tend to play kind of a background role. One of the people who I'm working with right now often describes them as like cooks in the kitchen. You know, they're the ones who are in the kitchen preparing the meals, but it's the waiters, you know, or the clinicians who are serving those meals. And labs really belong in more patient-facing and payer-facing roles than they currently have. So, you know, that's a lot of what I'm doing with the lab space right now. That's really cool. Yeah, I really like that uh, your illustration of how they're they're like cooks. Because I was um I was speaking to someone about music, um, a little off topic, but uh, yeah, we were just saying how a lot of like good songwriters they are in the background and then they 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 sell their um songs to singers who already have a big following and, and are big celebrities, but they're actually the ones that are writing these incredible songs. I don't know if you remember, but one of the first um, 
conversations I've had with you was uh, about genomics. Because I think at the time, in 2017, Grail was, I think, combining with Serena, which is like a, a private company based in Hong Kong. They were working on uh, early cancer detection projects. And uh, they combined. And then I was looking into that. And I, I found that you were writing on it. And it's funny how you know we connected over that. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Do you have any um, new projects or articles that you're planning to work on? I know you mentioned the ophthalmology project in 2020. Um, yeah, anything else you can share with us in the pipeline? Well, the thing about the ophthalmology project is that that's the one where I am actually going to be publicly facing as part of that project so I can talk about it. Most of mm. my other projects, again, they're in the context of consulting work with private companies where there are NDAs in place. So it, it's, um, you know, I can't talk in too much detail about what these specific initiatives are. Uh, I can say at a top level that I'm doing a lot of work in the lab diagnostic space, as mentioned. Uh, I do have a project right now with a leading healthcare logistics provider. Um, so we're doing a lot of research on the cold chain space in Asia, and we're going to be doing some writing and, and strategy exercises built around that. Um, and then in terms of the kinds of stuff that I'm interested in that I may be writing about under my own name through my journalistic work, things that you know are probably probably not like the highest priority in terms of my current workflow, but stuff that I'm parking in the back of my mind that I'm thinking about is, um, so first of all, Australia and their healthcare innovation space, an area that interests me because I've actually done basically no work in Australia ever, even in the context of five years of healthcare work for various types of clients, I've done almost nothing related to or in Australia. I took my first trip ever to Australia last month. I went to Perth in Western Australia. And while it was vacation, I did meet a few of the local medical technology uh, innovation leaders. And I learned that Western Australia specifically, but Australia broadly, happens to have this uh, flourishing medical research community that is producing a lot of innovation that the government is working hard to try to commercialize. So it's an interesting potential story. I'm just starting to dig into it. I don't know if or when I will actually produce something about it, but it's something that uh, intrigues me. And then the other area that I want to learn more about that I may be writing about in the future is the, the growing class of digital therapeutics. This is something where there are more and more companies, it seems, that are launching new initiatives in this space. And so looking at the digital therapeutics and how they're growing uh, could also be another area that I write about. But at this point, between now and the end of the year, I'm probably not going to be doing anything under my own name. Almost all of my work at this point is going to be consulting work. So uh, you'll have to stay tuned until 2020 before I start publishing more on some of these other topics. But uh, but yeah, overall, it's a, it's a busy year. It's, as usual, a very diverse year. So uh, that's what's going on on my end. And if there are any listeners out there who are working in any of those areas, be it ophthalmology, lab diagnostics, or, um, or, or healthcare logistics, specifically cold chain shipping, uh, feel free to reach out. I would love to talk with you and share more about what, I, what I'm working on and see how we can help each other. Yeah, that sounds great, Will. Um, yeah, thanks for just sharing your background and the work that you're doing. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see you um, succeed and, um, and get more uh, insights and just be able to share with us in a later date. Yeah, definitely looking forward to your new projects and some of the articles that will come out in 2020. So before we sign off, 
if people want to support your work or work with you, where can people find you or connect with you or follow you? Sure. Well, I do have a website. It's tigermind.com. That's tiger like the animal, mind, M-I-N-E, like where you dig for things. <laughs> so one word, tigermind.com. And I have to spell that out specifically because one of the mistakes that I made when I first named this company was I, I didn't realize how easy it is for the word mine and mind with a D to get confused. So <laughs> I find myself having to spell that out quite a lot. But that's, um, that's, that's where you can find some further information about me and my work. I'm also active on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. Will Green uh, is my name. Green has an E at the end. And so G-R-E-E-N-E, -E, so you can find me there. I do a little bit of Twitter. I'm not quite as active on Twitter. I, you know, I, I mostly use Twitter to share things that I write when I write them. Uh, whereas with LinkedIn, it's where I more spend time actually reading and interacting with people. But those are three platforms where I can be reached. And through any of those platforms, people can send me a message. And usually I'm pretty responsive. And on my end, I just want to reiterate that I think it's such a great idea what you're doing in terms of doing this podcast. And I wish you the best success and luck in the future. And I will look forward to listening to the first one that you did um, previously before this one. I'm happy to be your second ever podcast attendee. And I look forward to listening more in the future. Yeah, thanks so much, Will. Yeah, hopefully I can get this uh, podcast going and continuing to, you know, contribute to the healthcare community. And I'll put all these links in the show notes, including your, your website and Singapore Bow Design and link to the white paper and yeah hopefully you know we can continue to keep in touch and that's it for the podcast and if you want to support me and this podcast please rate review and subscribe to this podcast and let me know what you think i'm also on twitter at jchan pharma i'm open to just connecting and yeah let me know what you think and open to hearing suggestions on what topics to cover next so until next time